Welcome to the Joy and Needles show. We're up here in Joshua Tree on October 13th, and our guest today is John Kenny, reading from his novel, The Spark. And I'm going to do my business and shut up and let John tell you about himself and his book. Thanks, Rick. This is The Spark, Chapter 1. The windows were black with soot. Tendrils of smoke seeped out from the edges of the flat roof and wove themselves together like a dark shroud rising into the night. A single-story building, after ten, no lights on. Probably no one inside this late. It wasn't conscious thought, just something that Fitz and Donnie instinctively knew, just as they knew from the smell, color, and density of the smoke that the fire inside was well established. The door was cool to the touch. The fire hadn't reached the front of the building yet. Donnie pulled his hand back and drove the K-tool over the lock cylinder. He grunted and heaved. The cylinder popped neatly out of the door. He inserted a screwdriver into the hole and pried the bolt back. Nice work, Fitz nodded. Yeah, some old guy taught me that a few years back, Donnie grinned as he put the tools down. Fitz ignored the remark. They donned the face pieces of their self-contained breathing apparatus and turned on the air tanks on their backs. Cool, fresh air flowed into the masks. Fitz reached for the door, then paused. Remember, the water main shut down, no sprinklers inside and Moose is going to have to drag the suction all the way back to Cherry Street to catch a hydrant. Lucky us, Donnie thought. He bent to pick up the 38-millimeter attack line. Until the hydrant was hooked up, they would have only the water they carried in the truck's tank, barely three minutes worth, maybe a little more if they used it sparingly. You ready, Wedge? Fitz asked. And if I said no, Donnie replied, I should have canned you when you were a probie. <laughs> you should have thought of that 20 years ago, Donnie laughed. It sounded tinny and hollow inside the mask. Both men felt the familiar surge of adrenaline. Let's kick this thing in the teeth. They instinctively stepped to the side as Fitz pulled open the door, giving the fire a fresh supply of air. Dark smoke billowed out into the night. They stepped inside and were swallowed by the blackness. Once more they were blind men, guided only by touch. They groped their way down the corridor, the heat increasing as they went. The sound of their own breathing inside the SCBA was loud in their ears. The corridor turned left and the heat grew more intense. They dropped to their knees. It was a couple of hundred degrees cooler near the floor. They still couldn't see anything, but they knew they were getting closer to the seat of the fire. Fitz held the mic of his radio to his face piece. Pumper 6, Captain of Pumper 6, charge the line, Eddie. On its way. Eddie pulled open the valve on the pump panel at the side of the truck. The hose running into the building surged and snapped as a hundred PSI of water rushed through the line. Donnie opened the nozzle and aimed the stream towards the unseen fire that lay ahead. The heat only increased as the water turned to steam. Feels like a pretty good fire load up ahead, Fitz. I'm not sure we're going to knock it down with this 38. Fitz keyed his mic. Pumper 6 Captain, we're going to need a second line in here. I'm at the hydrant now, Moose panted over the radio. As soon as it's hooked up, I'll bring in a 65. Fitz turned to Donnie. Come on, let's move up. Let's at least put a dent in it. The pressure in the hose made it stiff now. Donnie and Fitz grunted, dragging it along as they inched their way down the corridor. The heat was building rapidly and they began to see a dull glow ahead of them in the murky haze. They could hear the sirens of arriving trucks. Pumper 7 on scene, the radio crackled. Aerial 7 on scene. Pumper 6 captain to Pumper 7, the main body of the fire is at the back of the building. Bring a line around to the rear and see if you can find a back door. Okay, Scooter? Roger, Fitz. 
Ariel 7 Captain and Pumper 6 Captain, we're heading to the roof fits. We're going to cut some holes and ventilate some of that smoke and heat for you. Thanks, Billy. It's getting pretty hot in here. We need that second line now. I'm medium rare already, Donnie commented. Moose will be here in a minute. Move up and see if you can lob that stream in a little deeper. They crawled forward towards the orange glow. Jeez, I got an open door. Donnie, it's burning in here too. Swing the hose over and give it a wash. Donnie turned towards Fitz. He could see a hazy orange rectangle, the outline of a doorway with fire beyond. Donnie swung the nozzle and sent the stream of water through the doorway. The orange glow faded, but did not disappear completely. I'm going in, Wedge, Fitz said. Maybe I can find a window to bust out, get rid of some of this heat. You keep the fire from coming down the hall. I don't think that's a good idea, Fitz. It's getting too hot too fast. I think this thing was set up. I'll be okay. You just protect the hallway. Trust me, I've done this before. Fitz could hear the smirk in Fitz's voice, even if he couldn't see his face. Reluctantly, Donnie turned back as Fitz disappeared into the room. The torrent of heat pouring down the hallway was almost unbearable now. Even lying flat on his belly, it stabbed through the layers of his bunker suit. He aimed the nozzle down the corridor, swinging it in a tight arc, hoping vainly to blunt the merciless thrust of the heat. At the time, everything seemed to happen at once, though when he tried to remember it later, it all seemed to flow with the slow, relentless momentum of a glacier. Tongues of fire began to ripple through the smoke over Donnie's head. Angel fingers, they were called. It was an indication that the fire was about to flash over, become a raging inferno that nothing and no one could survive. He swung the nozzle over his head as he rose to pivot on one knee. I've got a body. Shit, Donnie, I've got a body, he heard Fitz call. <laughs> Moose's voice sounded over the radio. I've got the 65. I'm coming in the door now, Cap. It's going to flash, Fitz. we got to bail. Donnie wasn't sure if he actually said it or only thought it. He lunged back towards the doorway. Chief 41 on, on scene, assuming command. Pumper 6 Captain, give me a... Oh my god. The world, the world blossomed in brilliant yellow. There was a dull roar punctuated by the sound of breaking glass as flames leapt hungrily from a dozen windows. The air inside seemed to clear as the fire consumed the smoke and everything else in its path. As he fell, Donnie thought he glimpsed two forms inside the side room, one kneeling over the other, two beings of living flame. His last memories were of sensations, not images. The first was a cool torrent of water, like Niagara Falls itself was pouring over him. The second was of being hauled helpless from the angry jaws of the beast by some great irresistible force. End of chapter one. Sounds <laughs> sounds super realistic, John. Um, uh, did you know something about fires? Or <laughs> yeah, I am a captain on the Toronto Fire Department, and uh, one of my goals in writing this book was to give a sense of what it's actually like, at least from my point of view. I mean, the the story does em emphasize the action and the drama. Um, but I wanted to to convey a sense of what it what it feels like to be in a burning building, the sense of camaraderie between uh, between the people. That and came across really well, I thought. Yeah, and the 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 38 and 65 uh, were metric in Canada, so uh, for your American listeners, a 38 millimeter line is an inch and a half line, and a 65 is a two and a half inch line. So that's a translation. <laughs> Thanks for that. It's a lot of water force, isn't it? Yeah. Hard to hold 
Uh, 65 uh, in most cases takes two people to hang on to it because of the reaction pressure. It's, it will literally lift you off your feet. If you've seen those hoverboard things of people <laughs> that with the water jet coming out underneath them, that's what it's like. Yeah. So the back says, searching for the truth is the most dangerous thing a firefighter, Donnie Robertson, will ever do. So what is he searching for? I mean, be, um, obviously the truth, but... Yeah, so we've we, we, we just heard the opening, so... Uh, has something to do with this body that we just heard? Yeah, so they go to this fire, which is the opening of the book. Um, there's a body inside already, and uh, Captain Fitzgerald, Fitz, as, as he's called, is also killed in that fire. And everyone sort of says, oh, what a, what a tragedy, what a terrible collision of circumstances. It's, you know, but we've got to move on. Um, there's no obvious indication that it was an arson job. But Donnie isn't satisfied that that is in fact the case. And so he embarks on an investigation of his own, as inept as firefighters are, trying to play detective. And he gets in way over his head in a, in a story that involves industrial uh, espionage and arson for hire and murder and intrigue. Oh. And it kind of ricochets back on him, and he ends up running for his life. Sounds like a fun read. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Rick. Okay. And, oh, before we leave, though, you, you mentioned that this might be a trilogy, so... I'm working on the other two, and uh, no promises. I'm unfortunately one of those undisciplined writers that... <laughs> That's the question. Many of our uh, listeners, of course, are writers also, so yeah. they they're, would be interested in how do you juggle it, working full-time as a captain on a police or a fire department and going ahead and writing a novel with that? Uh, I, I guess the short answer is I don't handle it very well. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to be retiring in a year and a half, so at that point my plan is to be able to be more disciplined and more dedicated to the writing. Excellent. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com. There might be some more questions for you after. You could turn off your machine there, but oh. you can... There might be some questions other people will want to know I too. A question, John. Yeah. Uh, I felt completely drawn into it as I was listening to you, mm. and I felt I wondered what it was like for you reading um, This this is a fictional story, but it's 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 based on you know a you know a lifetime's worth of experience in in, in the fire department, and and uh, and I have buried a lot of friends on the job, and uh, and that never leaves you. So every time I. I get into that that part, and I named the character, um, you know, Captain Paul Fitzgerald, who was actually my first captain when I when, when I joined the fire service, and he's still very much alive. So he's kind of pissed off that I killed him right in the first <laughs> chapter. <laughs> but yeah, every time I every, you know every time I go through that, you know, it, it brings back scenes and memories of, of of other friends who 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 have not made it, and uh, and so that always you know puts a little bit of a lump in my throat. Um, it's a privilege to be able to go out. Every time we leave the, you know, the fire station, it's, it's often the worst day of someone's life. And it's a privilege to be able to go out and, and try and render service and try and make that better. And sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. 
but there's also a, a, a price that gets paid with that with that service. So uh, you know that's one of the things that I want to pay honor to and and, uh, and and make you know my my tribute. Excellent. Um, so I've read the book, obviously, and um, I loved it. And um, but this was the first time I heard the part where he said it's like a hundred degrees cooler when you get down on the floor. It, it, yeah, I, I mean the heat stratifies. Right, but uh, so I didn't realize it's that hot. Yeah, you can have eight hundred, a thousand degrees Fahrenheit up near the ceiling, and it'd be two or three hundred degrees at the floor level. So yeah. how high of a temperature do your suits cover? Really, really it's, it's, it's temperature plus length of time. Mm -hmm. so, so they can withstand high temperature, you know, seven or eight hundred degrees for brief periods, less than a couple, you know, a, a, a minute or so, or they can withstand, you know, three or four hundred degrees. The problem is that by the time the heat gets through the fabric, there are several layers. There's the outside, which is fire resistant. Nothing is entirely fireproof. Uh, but the outside, then there's quilted layers and there are vapor barriers mm. to, to keep us from getting steam burns mm. and so on. And by the time that heat gets through, um, depending on how deep you are into the building, it may be too late to get out. Mm. So in addition to the air pack that we're wearing, the mm. breathing apparatus, there are heat sensors on that that are pre-programmed mm. to sense temperature and length of time mm. and they will alarm and, and tell us when it's time to uh, time to withdraw. It's an audio. Well, well, well. No, it's just it's it's just sitting on your chest, and mm -hmm. you'll but if you'll, you hear it. you'll be able to hear it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that that brings it home. It's hot. <laughs> Turn your oven all the way up to the as high as it'll go, 550 degrees, and then open the door and stick your head inside. I don't even looks like it's not always fun, is it? Well, it's not fun to think of my brother doing that all the time. I just didn't well, realize. Of course it's hot, but I never allowed myself <laughs> to think about that until this minute. Yeah. The other, I mean, the other side of the coin, though, is we're, we're really well trained. I mean, yeah. they don't just grab you off the street and throw you into a blazing inferno. We're, yeah, you know, we're hard. trained. We have, I mean, as... When I was new on the job, I had the benefit of, of uh, people that had decades of experience and you learn in that process, you know, over the years you learn how to read the smoke. Mm -hmm. You learn how to, how, how to use your senses, other than your visual senses, your sense of feel, touch, hearing even. You can hear the fire working in the building mm -hmm. and you get to know what the risk factors are and make intelligent choices mm -hmm. and you know we'll risk a lot to save a lot if it's you know a human life then we'll go to the you know our utmost limits if it's just furniture I'm not gonna mm -hmm. I'm not gonna risk someone's life for you know to try to save furniture um, and, and now the privileged position that I am at the end of my career you know in my last year or two I get to pass that knowledge on now and mentor young firefighters, young men and women that are coming into the service. Mm -hmm. And that's valuable knowledge because we don't get the number of fires that we used to. Mm -hmm. um, because fire protection technology is so much better, mm -hmm. more smoke alarms, buy a smoke alarm people, please buy a smoke alarm, it's the cheapest life insurance you'll ever buy. 
more smoke alarms, better sprinklers, and more buildings are sprinklered. So we don't get the number of fires that we used to. That's great. That saves property and, and lives and everything else that's important. It doesn't give firefighters, the younger firefighters now, the, the amount of experience to be able to gather that instinctive sense of what to do in a situation to be able to read the smoke. And so I try and pass on what was passed on to me. And that's, you know, that's a great privilege too. It's a job that conveys many, many privileges. Are you passing that on through your novel also? I mean, it sounds like there's things that are happening in the novel that, that yeah, are realistic. Yeah. You know, I tried to make it as, again, I'm, so it's, 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 it's not Hollywood. It's not like we're, we're rushing into blazing, you know, buildings every single moment of, of the time. I mean, it's, as, as, as I say in the foreword to the book, it's, it's a lot like what people say about the military. It's 90% boredom and 10% terror. And so, well, yeah. Hopefully, so, we want the fire fire department to stay in that <laughs> building over there. <laughs> yeah, we don't want you out there. But so, if I made it entirely, you're there when we need you. <laughs> if I made it entirely realistic, and, and you know, and, and spent ninety percent of the book talking about uh, you know washing the truck and polishing the floors and cleaning the toilets and and all the other <laughs> stuff the and all the training and everything like that, it wouldn't be very interesting. So, like I say, I, I you know I try to make the fire scenes realistic but I've emphasized the action rather than the day-to-day -day routine. Although there's parts of that in the book too, because that's part of daily life. I read the book as well and I really did enjoy it. And um, maybe so that the amount of domestic fires are going down, but, but the wildfires at least here are yeah. increasing. Um, do you know what the exact causes are that that's yeah, wild wildland firefighting is a completely different ball game. I mean, I work in in downtown Toronto in the central city, so it's not something I've had I've had a little bit of experience with. And it's hot, nasty, dirty, dangerous work. And 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 why that's happening is a combination of factors. Um, definitely, there are you know we're encountering more drought situations. Uh, the weather, whether it's long-term climate or or whatever, I, I you know climate. You have to measure over centuries, but things are changing. Um, and the, the other issue is the urban wildland interface. People are building out into vulnerable areas. So especially here in Southern California, you know, communities are growing out into these arid canyon areas. And fire is a part of, a natu of the natural environment in those areas. And so to try and try and limit what is supposed to naturally occur is always a recipe, you know, a challenge anyway, if not a recipe for disaster. Because if you don't let it burn, then you just build up a greater and greater fuel load till, till, till finally when it does go, it becomes, it becomes catastrophic. So, you know, I think we need to learn where and how to build and maybe not not maybe expand. Not at sea level either. <laughs> hmm? Maybe not at sea level Well, either. that will be a challenge in, in a few decades from now too, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the ca fire cause determination is is another thing. Yeah, um, um, people, for one reason or another, whether it's uh, you know psychosis or 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 it can be. Yeah, I mean, there are unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, there there are situations where firefighters have been arrested for setting fires too because you know it's uh, either they're trying to increase the. I know there was one uh, 
one volunteer department back up where I live, not too far in, in Canada, where a firefighter, they wanted to buy a new fire truck and the county, the county wouldn't pay for new equipment for them. So they tried to prove that they, you know, one guy tried to prove that they actually needed this stuff and started setting barns on fire. Oh, so, you know, that's the black, uh, the black shame of the fire service is that sometimes there are people that are compulsive fire setters that become firefighters too. That's yeah, why I called the novel The Spark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah.